0: Welcome to the Crimecast, a weekly briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spota Kindle, VP of product development with ACFCS, and today we're taking a globetrotting trip across the Asia-Pacific or APAC region, examining fin crime risks and compliance considerations in what is a fast-developing, or already developed, and highly populated, highly innovative part of the world. Uh, Our tour guide for this trip is Stephen Sherman, a sage of regtech, fintech, data, and AI for IBM. He joins us from Singapore, where he teaches at the National University Business School and brings with him more than 25 years of experience in Asia Pacific with numerous tech firms, multinational corporations, and the public sector. Together, we'll explore topics ranging from emergent payment rails, risk from North Korea, the burgeoning crypto and digital asset world in APAC, and more. Uh, As you might have seen, this is the first part in a two-part series. And in part one, we'll be taking on real-time payments across APAC, AML enforcement and regulatory perspectives in the region, and looking at key considerations related to sanctions risk. Stephen, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the time equally.
0: If you don't mind, uh, could you just start out by letting listeners know a little bit about your experience in this space, particularly as it relates to fin crime compliance and the APAC region?
1: Sure. Uh, I guess there's two elements to your question. Firstly, at a personal level, you know, why am I living and working in Asia? Um, I'm part Asian, so there's always been a personal interest in terms of this part of the world as it's developed. I'm no longer called an underdeveloped region, very much developing, Mm -hmm. adopting technologies, fast-tracking certain aspects of infrastructure and so forth, and of course a growing young population, so that there's a self-interest there, but in terms of the domain area, you can probably hear in the accent, which I have not lost, um, still very Australian, but uh, a number of years ago, getting close to 30 years ago, I moved to the Asian part of Asia-Pacific, initially with uh, the foreign department, Uh, Work started in the intelligence space and then I went into security and there's always been an element around understanding and and tracking how information's used um, either to help an organization take an opportunity forward from a business standpoint and or to stop a potential threat. That's been the two common themes. So that's what's been blended in my past experience and very much my current experience. Now working both in the public sector and the private sector on, on many occasions
0: Thank you for that. It's a diverse viewpoint coming, as you say, not just from the financial institution perspective, but also an intelligence perspective and a public sector perspective. So appreciate you bringing that to this conversation. So let's kick it off with a topic that's been a focus in your region recently. And as you mentioned, this is not really a developing region anymore. It's increasingly developed, and part of that has been investment in the financial infrastructure, including payments modernization from institutions across the region. But obviously, APAC. Is isn't monolithic. So when we look country by country, there are varying states of maturity. Can you give some insights on how the real, real-time real payment space is developing? Uh, some key countries to look out for. And for our AML and compliance folks in the audience, uh, what are some key risk factors that maybe should be keeping them up at night?
1: Yeah, so I would classify the whole real-time payment piece in three distinct groupings so so firstly i mean you must look at and you must appreciate the demographics of this region now obviously you know japan australia singapore and hong kong these are countries with aging populations but if you move them aside um, we in the west have this huge fixation obviously on china and india um populations over a billion people but then if you look at elsewhere in asia you know there are countries like indonesia 285 million Uh, There's other countries in the Philippines, 120 million and so forth. And the key demographic which you'd need to appreciate, there's two factors. One, incredibly young, 60 to 70% below 30 years old. So that's pretty young. Uh, Then there's also smart device proliferation. So in some countries, believe it or not, uh, smart device ratio is two to one. So you have a young population that is connected. So that's a very important factor to understand. Part of that also linked is obviously, you know, understanding this demographic. What does this age group uh, want to have and what they believe is is the norm, their expectation. They want to be connected. They want to have the ability. I'll use the Uber experience as the example to have the chance to buy and, and or experience something instantaneous. So that's a key demographic and a behavioral profile you need to understand. Layered on that, you then have, of course, and what we have globally is the fintech explosion. So to align to this younger generation, fintechs have exploded to deliver this Uber experience, not only from a hailing perspective, but the ability to order food, the ability to get a foot massage, the ability to go and find someone to give you advice on healthcare, whatever the service is, having that ability to connect simultaneously and seamlessly. Now, banks have reacted in two ways. How do we respond to this changing demographic to give the fintech experience? And likewise, they understand to set up traditional infrastructure, a bricks and mortar bank is extremely costly. So they understand the importance of digital. So in some countries, I made reference to India, there's this big drive by Modi, who's the current leader of the country to make it a digital economy. There is a strong belief, let's make it a digital economy, demonetize, have everything connected online, the ability to pay. It's very real, it's it's not an aberration in the desert, it's something we are seeing. And then lastly, later across that, because of this demographic, because of this FinTech push, you're now starting to see the regulators come in. So Australia, the most progressive in the sense that they rolled out the National Payment Platform, MPP is the acronym, whereby there is very clear guidelines and rules in terms of how real-time payments should be delivered by the banks to customers. By law, the banks must deliver payments in X timeframe for an ability for a customer to buy a service and pay. So it's black and white, there's no ambiguity. What's interesting to note across the region, so you have other countries in various stages of delivering this same real-time experience supported by the regulators. So in some countries you have what's called the National Payment Gateway. You have FinTechs delivering you know, prompt pay, which is real-time payments and you have various shapes and forms of these different types of payment gateways, either fully supported by the regulator or partial development or embryonic, but they all have the similar trend in terms of addressing the demographics and the user base wanting to have this experience as it pertains to real-time payments. So it cannot be ignored. It's, it's quite interesting.
0: It's interesting to see the role that the regulators are playing, too, because at least, you know, I'm sitting here in the US and there tends to be at least a faction within the financial technology community that's a bit down on the regulators, you know, saying they stifle innovation and so forth. But it sounds like exactly the opposite might be playing out here, that it's really the regulatory frameworks and the collaboration with industry that's encouraging innovation. Is that a fair characterization?
1: Yeah, I mean, the regulator's involvement, I guess, uh, falls in several buckets. Um, You know, obviously, there's the threat and the real incidences as it relates to certain financial crimes. So they've had to respond in that manner. You could also argue that in some ways the traditional banks have also leaned on the regulators to provide some guidelines because they see their business being eroded and or being attacked by the fintechs. So what are the rules that govern how we operate? You know, we also want to enter the, the area of fintech, you know, how do we enter to ensure there's still competition? Uh, not monopolies and likewise what the rules should be in place for fintechs to also comply how traditional banks operate so what, what's what's the, the ground where all can play and, and that's how the regulator has gotten involved uh, so I would say from twofold once again as it pertains to actual incidences that we have seen around crime or personal data theft or protection of personal data or or alternatively. What are the rules of, of, of the game? You know, how do we operate in this new environment because there's lack of clarity? Um, so you could call it collaboration, very much so.
0: And we're talking about real-time payments, you know, real-time obviously means speed and speed in a transaction can sometimes increase risk, potentially increasing risk of fraud, opening up money laundering risk. So how do you get a handle on your financial crime risk when you're increasing the rate of your transactions and, and ramping up that transaction speed? Does that open the door to considerations around financial crime risk? These I've mentioned here and others.
1: Yeah, look, that, that, that's a great question. So when the fintechs were first launched, I mean, I use the analogy like the great California gold rush. So you would see these fintechs launching and the focus was very much on what service are they delivering? And it was very much on growth and the adoption rate. You, you could argue in some of the countries, um, persons like myself would say, OK, I'm going to try. This particular app, this particular hailing service, this particular food delivery service. But at the same time, I was still very much tied to traditional methods, you know, going to the restaurant, going to the bank, and so forth. But as, as adoption rate has increased, and that's been uh, achievable by the sense, and this is the other interesting thing about Asia, unlike other parts of the Western world, you have infrastructure in place that is already 4G, LTE, in some countries 5G, mm. you know, the, the first stages. The infrastructure is in place to deliver the real-time payment. So it's important to understand that. Now on the back of that, as you rightly flag, because it's so quick, you know, faster payments, I often say, and I, and I don't say this as a joke, equals faster crime. Because the ability mm-hmm. to move the money from A to B, from Stephen to Brian, is fast. But then think about, from Brian, where does the money move next? It could go to Gary, it could go to Frank, Bill, Bob, Jessica, and so forth. So how the money moves in across multiple accounts or from peer to peer is incredibly quick. So from a crime standpoint, to track, to monitor, to understand where these payments are moving, it's incredibly challenging. And again, it's across borders and countries, jurisdictions, regulations, Rules, laws, reporting, etc. So that's what's really challenging.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a it's a regional issue and really an international issue more so than limited to just one set of countries or one set of companies. So, uh, speaking of regional and international issues, we'll stay on the topic of financial crime, but look a bit more broadly when it comes to enforcement on AML uh, and fin crime. So, we've seen a wave. Uh, of enforcement actions. And really, this is not a particularly new trend, I would say. We've seen enforcement actions for the past few years, some from U.S. authorities, others more homegrown cases related to anti-money laundering and financial crime compliance on major financial institutions in the APAC region. And more recently, it seems like it's actually cases from national regulators within APAC, more so than some of the cases from outside the U.S. or Europe or so forth, implicating these institutions. So, what is driving this uptick in enforcement, and how does that reflect some of the key threats from an AML and sanctions perspective?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple things playing here. So when you talk about Asia Pacific, I mean, often across the region, based on the maturity of the banking sector, Australia is always a reference point. Um, you may disagree, dislike, and so forth, but that that is the brutal fact. So. As it pertains to regulations, Australia has been under the microscope for a good year and a half plus now. And that's Mm. been um, predicated on two very, very large incidences. So the first one was the CBA money laundering incident whereby ATMs were basically being used by criminal syndicates to launder money. Uh, The regulator got involved, the the subsequent fine to CBA, and this is a public secret, I mean it's in the media, I'm not sharing anything unusual here, was 800 plus million dollars. Now that's a significant fine, Uh, 800 million Australian, give or take, you know, with the current exchange rate, I think it's still half a billion US dollars, so it's significant. Initially, when that happened, I mean, you you typically will hear the knee-jerk response. Oh, that was an outlier. I mean, that's a once-off. That's not going to happen. But here we are, only three, four weeks post another major Australian bank being implicated on a money laundering incident, and it's Westpac, which we're still awaiting to see what the impending fine will be. What's very interesting about this particular incident, it's specific to Westpac. But the trail of money, in fact, ends up in the country called the Philippines. And what's also interesting is the Philippines regulator is now actively involved in where the money landed. So a number of banks have been named. They're being investigated. And, you know, we're waiting to see what happens next. So, you know while we talk about specific countries you're starting to see the regulator because of the movement of money having to work with their peers across the region and that's because that's where the money has ended up follow the money you always hear that term follow the money but there's i think increasing pressure for these particular regulators to work together because the criminals it's not by coincidence they move the money to a different jurisdiction they fully understand the laws in these different countries they understand what are the potential fines. They also understand the potential investigative powers of these particular countries. So the Philippines, why would this country be picked? It's kind of interesting. The Bank Secrecy Act in the Philippines is incredibly tight. I mean, in some ways you can mm. compare it to banking laws in Switzerland. So it's not coincidental criminals move money to a particular jurisdiction. They know exactly what they're doing. So it comes back to my point. How do these regulators work together? And you know, the term I would use coming back to CBA is that an outlier, I would probably suggest not. Uh, we are now reaching a point because of the number of incidences, what I would suggest is what's called peak regulation. We're getting to a point now, the public is demanding that there is action being, has, you know, has to be taken because it's just unacceptable. You know, you have these large banks that are making large amounts of profit and they basically you know should be subject to scrutiny, particularly when money's being laundered, it's ending up in particular syndic- criminal syndicates, it's being ch- linked to child pornography and so forth. So I mean the issue is incredibly hot, and it cannot be ignored. So I would say this is not an outlier. This is just the very beginning of increased scrutiny and regulation. Now the one question that remains un- unanswered, of course, is, again, because we're talking about different countries which regulators will have the teeth, which regulators will only have a bark. So that's what we're waiting to see play out.
0: Right, yeah, that's a very important point and tying it back to the point on uh, real-time payments that you made before. It seems criminals do live in a much more seamless international ecosystem in many ways than the individuals and organizations charged with stopping them, right? So they're moving money internationally and regulators, law enforcement, compliance officers can't follow nearly as quickly in most circumstances. So that collaboration and and coordination and that appetite for really tangible enforcement is going to be extremely important to get a handle on. Uh, So on a similar note, uh, or at least a related note, the Westpac case you mentioned didn't necessarily have a nexus to sanctions and uh, sanctions enforcement, but there have been other cases in the region related to sanctions, and it generally continues to be a major risk specifically in regards to North Korea. I just saw the other day that there was a report from a UN panel of experts that talks about how North Korea continues to find ways to evade U.S. sanctions. Russian companies, Chinese companies continue to buy products from North Korea. And there's all sorts of innovative tactics they've adopted over the past few years, uh, from cryptocurrency theft to -to ship-to-ship transfers of coal. So if I'm a financial institution in the region, or a financial institution with correspondent relationships in the region. Uh, what are some of the key risk areas around North Korean sanctions compliance? And how are you seeing institutions respond to this uh, ongoing threat?
1: Yeah, so th- this is a really, really interesting topic because, okay, this specific country you make reference to, uh, North Korea, if you would wind the clock back a couple years only, and if you look at their activity, which was in the cyber crime uh, space, or cyber in general, so cyber warfare, I, I guess you could use the term. It was very much at that time focused on what I would call you know, young people trying to deface a website. So it was malicious. <laughs> so wind back the clock a few years, and I, I recall this personally from my own personal experience being in the southern part of that nation, so South Korea, uh, you would see infiltration on the basic infrastructure of Seoul. So it would be to bring down the grid, the power grid, to create disruption on the stock exchange. So it was malicious. And then one morning they woke up for whatever reason, and you know, here's a little factoid for you, 2019 approximately North Korea's GDP is roughly 18 billion US dollars. So that's incredibly small for a nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they realized, you know what, rather than focusing on being malicious, Let's um, be a little bit more smart about what we're doing and use cyber or financial crime as an avenue to generate revenue, particularly if our country cannot trade and we're embargoed. So if you look at the activity of North Korea where you make reference to buying coal, third party shipments, fictitious companies and so forth, that's fundamentally what it's all about. So, you know, the initial phase was via Bitcoin purchases, difficult to trace, cryptocurrencies to build up income income stream, it's all about generating income for the economy. So it comes to the question, how do you identify um, persons of interest? Um, How do you identify companies that have been listed in certain jurisdictions that may have Stephen's name on the board of directors or Brian's name, but in fact behind us, we're just figureheads, but behind us are, are certain names from a particular regime that are on a particular list that we have interest on. And the challenge that exists at the moment, most of the systems and most of the banks and regulators to gather this data, to build this map together, to build this jigsaw, how is Stephen and Brian connected? Do we happen to have a third party friend that we met in Switzerland at finishing school that comes from a particular family from North Korea? Do we also have a link to a particular shipping company that buys fish through Fiji that's linked to another third party? Joining those links with all those different data pieces to understand actually who's behind a transaction has been incredibly difficult because the manner in which they break up the transaction, move the money around and hide it. And, you know, particularly in this part of the world, it makes it also very difficult. Difficult, of course, is the gaming industry. It's the perfect industry to go and launder the money. So that, so that's all the challenges the regulators are dealing with. And it comes down ultimately to identify, is this really Stephen? Is this really Brian? Who do? Who are we related to? What are other distinguishing factors that we can use to basically confirm that he's a person we can trust? And, and here's the most important part irrespective if we're good or bad we are creatures of nature we typically always do the same things so the investigative work as it relates to financial crime is to find the one or two or three anomalous behaviors that stick out from the rest that typically could be a calling sign that something is not right and that's what you have to focus on and that's what they struggle with i mean all of us struggle with
0: Stephen, thanks very much for the start to the guided tour and the insights so far. I'm sure we could keep going on this for hours and not exhaust the topics, and we will, maybe not for hours, but uh, we'll certainly be picking this conversation back up in part two of this podcast to look more uh, in detail at the sanctions issue, particularly through the lens of data. Uh, We'll examine the state of play within digital assets in the APAC region and discuss AI applications in compliance programs and much more. So uh, please join us for part two of the FinCrime focus on APAC. And thanks to the whole community for listening.